Welcome to today's Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler. And as usual, this show is brought to you by the Grace Gawler Institute for Integrated Cancer Solutions. We are located on the Gold Coast in Australia and we have a global outreach, particularly via this show, Navigating the Cancer Maze, which provides you, the patient, with updates and the latest information from experts in cancer around the globe. Today we're going to look at an answer to cancer, how your immune body clock can assist complete remission. We're asking the question, could the timing of cancer patients' treatments be the missing link in the delivery of therapies? And two cancer researchers, Martin Ashdown, whom I'll be talking with today, and Brenton Coventry, are what I call immunological explorers, who have not only unearthed a buried treasure, but they've also created a map for other innovative cancer explorers to follow. The treasure is a cancer drug used for more than 20 years and it's now providing oncologists with new information about how to best help patients achieve complete remission. The drug's known as interleukin-2 and it's providing the researchers with something akin as to how the Rosetta Stone was used to unlock historical script and the outcome has been a map, mapping the immune cycle to enhance the outcome of treatments. Now, Martin Ashdown is a Melbourne-based scientist. He's a research fellow at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Melbourne. Martin has made the observation that the immune response in the late-stage cancer patient is oscillating repeatedly over an approximate seven-day period or cycle. And this observation may have profound implications for the time delivery of various therapies, which via immune modulation may increase what we know as complete response rates, reduce toxicity and substantially reduce cost of treatment. Martin has co-designed trials at international institutions and presented at international conferences advocating monitoring patients prior to treatment and accurately timing therapy as pulses. This technique, known as immune synchronisation, is believed to already happen accidentally in those patients who successfully respond to therapy with a complete response. Martin and colleagues suggest that the drugs and the resources to successfully treat cancer are already here but need to be used more accurately. Now as a result of today's uh, navigating the cancer maze topic we know that a lot of patients and uh, practitioners, oncologists are going to be very interested in this subject. So if you're a patient listening today and you really want to get the best knowledge and know how to work with this information, may I please encourage you to log on to our website, the Grace Gawler Institute, and go on the menu. You'll see a little link there, Immune Cycle Registry. What we've decided to do as a result of the really great significance and importance of this information is to assist you to find the right method and the right way to approach your treating practitioners to see if they can help you to measure your immune cycle and we feel that the most responsible way to do this is uh, via the website and being able to help you directly one-on-one as patients. So um, I'll talk about that at the end of the show once again. Uh, you can also go to the blog graceschoolermedia.com and find out more information about registering for the Immune Cycle Registry. Without further ado, welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze, Martin Ashdown. And this promises to be one of the most inspiring interviews I think that we um, have ever had on Navigating the Cancer Maze, Martin. So uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Grace. Um, can you tell our listeners about your background? Okay, so I did my, I'm a scientist, I did my early training in uh, virology and electron microscopy, ended up as a senior member of the scientific staff in pathology at the Royal Women's Hospital here in Melbourne and uh, then got interested essentially by accident in, into, in uh, cancer immunology and then uh, did some collaborative work with the University of Western Australia, designed some trials here in Australia in the Mayo Clinic and uh, that's where we find ourselves today. 
And you work with Brendan Coventry. Can you tell us a little bit about Brendan's background and how you two came together in, in doing the work that we're going to talk about on the show today? Okay. So uh, Brendan uh, Coventry is Associate Professor of Surgery at uh, Adelaide University, Royal Adelaide Hospital. Brendan initially uh, uh, was, uh, did a science degree, then uh, medical, uh, and he's a surgical oncologist um, at Royal Adelaide Hospital, senior surgical consultant, but he had a, um, an interest in cancer immunotherapy and had been working on a melanoma vaccine, which um, I came across through an interview that he did with Australian Life Science. And his uh, melanoma vaccine in late-stage cancer patients uh, was delivering uh, complete responses in, in stage 4 melanoma patients, which is remarkable. And uh, this particular vaccine had, had essentially no toxicity profile. So that pretty much uh, uh, caught my attention. And then I spoke with Brendan, and he liked uh, my ideas, and we've been working together ever since. So you have a love affair with the immune system. Uh, how did that actually start? What was your passion in, in looking at the immune system? What ignited you, in other words? Uh, okay, when I was at the Royal Women's Hospital, I was uh, asked to set up a laboratory uh, looking at um, the DNA content of cancer cells, and in the process of setting up that laboratory, I was looking at, at cells of the immune system under stimulation and noticed that they, when you stimulate um, lymphocytes in particular, you know, these are sort of cancer-fighting um, white cells with the blood, um, they, when they divide, they do it synchronously and they do it at different stages and uh, so I got very interested in the in how uh, the immune system once it's triggered works over the over the time domain and uh, and then looked did a bit bit of further reading and uh, particularly of the work of Robert North which I would encourage encourage everyone to read about uh, and that really spurred me on to investigate this phenomenon in the human situation mm-hmm so um, you're quoted as saying in an article that was published in Australian or Australasian Science rather that the Rosetta Stone for cancer may be much closer than we think. Can you elaborate on that comment? Okay, so that was in an article about uh, the 20 years of clinical use of a uh, an immune hormone or cytokine called interleukin-2. Now, this drug has been used for 20 years to treat uh, late-stage melanoma and renal cell car- kidney cancer patients, renal cell carcinoma patients. These two cancers are very different, but they deliver complete responses where all disease disappears roughly at the same rate. And back when it was uh, first introduced 20-odd years ago, we didn't really understand how it worked other than it was thought to work by stimulating the immune system. Now we know paradoxically that this immune hormone that's used clinically is also responsible for switching the immune system off. And it's only been the result of the last 20 20 years of this clinical research and the immunology catching up with that clinical research that it becomes apparent that when this drug works successfully, from our work, it's indicating that it works through the timing of, of administration. And so if timing of administration is the principal determinant of efficacy, well then um, it opens up uh, the possibility that it's, it, it could be um, feasible to successfully treat most, if not all, cancer patients with this agent. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that more. Um, tell us about the big aha you must have had. There must have been a point where you went, oh, my God, this is, this is it. You know, standing on the shoulders of North... Can you tell us about that moment? Okay, so uh, yeah, it's important to appreciate that in the North experiments, he showed that if you, in the mouse experiments, that if you time chemotherapy very precisely and direct the chemotherapy not at the cancer in the mouse model, but at the uh, a subset of cells of the immune system called, what back then they were called suppressor cells, um, but now they're called regulatory T cells, that if you got rid of those regulatory T cells with one, a single dose of chemotherapy, um, you could free up the mouse's immune system to get rid of the cancer. So the, 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 the aha moment was that, well, you know, chemotherapy, when it works, works through manipulating the immune system. In fact, in North's experiments, the chemotherapy really had no effect over the cancer at all. Mm, interesting. Yes, and so that said to me that possibly that uh, the, the, the preceding decades of cancer research had been completely misdirected. 
Mm. By we, people were more interested in the cancer when, in fact, we should be more interested in the immune system. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of that, uh, it was important to try and understand what was going on um, uh, in, in the mouse's immune system and also the human immune system because of what North described in the mouse, if that was the case in the human, well, then you would have to accurately administer chemotherapy in the time domain. And so in the early experiments that I designed and co-designed with various people, it was important that we track the immune response on a daily basis. And this really hadn't been done before. And this is what we view as the major oversight in, in cancer immunology, that um, just as what we've done with the, uh, with the menstrual cycle of mapping the menstrual cycle on a daily basis, the fertility specialists, that has never been done in the immune response in the human situation. And it's still not being done. Quite so, remarkable. Yes. It's a major oversight. Um... What about William Colley's work? Does, uh, does this tie in in any way with the, the North uh, work? Oh, absolutely. So William Colley noticed that patients, uh, late-stage cancer patients who got infections as a result of surgical wounds, etc., and, and ulcerative, ulcerating um, tumour lesions, they would get infections and then get fevers. And in, in some of those patients, um, he noticed that the, the tumours would completely regress. So he had the idea that, well, if we, um, if we uh, infect a patient with a, a bacteria and induce an infection, um, perhaps we can get a fever and then perhaps that fever will uh, um, uh, cause tumour regression. And that's exactly what he found. And it took a number of years to figure out exactly why that was happening and ultimately because of his early work in the starting, I think, in the, in the late 1890s, that led to the discovery of tumour necrosis factor uh, a few decades ago, and then now we're starting to appreciate what Ashley Coley was observing because this whole reinvigoration um, of interest in immunotherapy um, is basically uh, it's a recapitulation of, of Coley's observations that you can manipulate the immune system of the cancer patient for remarkable therapeutic benefit. Mm, exciting stuff. Um, interleukin-2, for people who are listening today who are patients who this term might be new to, can you explain what interleukin-2 okay. is? This, was, this is um, uh, an immune hormone it's, or, or a cytokine that was uh, uh, identified um, uh, three decades ago and it was thought... Uh, it was often, it's often been called the master cytokine. It was one of the first immune hormones to, to be identified. And it, it was found that if uh, you gave uh, white cells lymphocytes, interleukin-2, it would, cause them, it would stimulate them and cause them to divide and multiply. Um, so it was thought to be a, what was known as a pro-inflammatory cytokine, um, switching the immune system on. And, uh, uh, but now what's, uh, what's, as I said earlier, what's been appreciated is that this hormone has a paradoxical uh, function. It also switches the immune system off. But it has been used successfully to treat late-stage cancer patients, principally melanoma and kidney cancer, but also there's, there's been a smattering of other trials in other cancers. Um, uh, but it, it essentially... Um, uh, is there to drive the immune system on. But it delivers complete responses consistently in around about 7% of late-stage patients. Mm. So a number of people have said that it's a very toxic substance to be using as a therapeutic agent. Mm. But mm. obviously what you're saying here mm. is that if you use it at the right time of the, of the cycle, that sure. is not the case. Well, well, what's interesting is that uh, this cytokine, this uh, interleukin-2, this hormone, immune hormone, has a very short normal physiologic half-life. So its activity, its normal activity happens very briefly. And in the therapeutic application, they give it as continuous eight-hour infusions over about three or four days. And so what we think's been happening is that uh, uh, this uh, normal immune hormone, its action is actually extended by the therapeutic application. And that, that extension at high dose can, can have some toxic side effects, although people are saying that those effects can be managed. But people have also noticed that intermediate and low dose, you can get similar effects. Mm-hmm. So it, we think it, it's possible to re- redesign that protocol. Instead of giving it for four days, give it for one day, Instead of at high dose, give it at much lower doses, uh, and we think the same sort of effects can be um, can be achieved. But more importantly, as um, uh, one of our um, as, as uh, Janice Dutcher, a very experienced cancer immunotherapist, uh, 
in New York have, uh, has written about our work, and which we're very grateful for. She thinks it has the ability, this change in protocol has the ability to dr- dramatically change the outcomes in, 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 in immunotherapy. Mm-hmm. So you um, must have some papers that you could quote if any of our listeners or any of the researcher practitioners who are listening today um, are specifically on the interleukin question. Oh, that uh, that we've published. Uh, there's an article that um, uh, we wrote a couple of years ago uh, called the 20th anniversary of, it, of the use of interleukin-2 therapy. Um, I would encourage anyone to read uh, Janice Dutch's work in the area. Um, uh, that's, I think that's pretty... Mm-hmm. They, for those papers should lead you... If you look at the references, those papers should lead you in the right direction. Great. And you'd be happy for me to put those uh, as references up on my blog? Oh, absolutely. So that people absolutely. can access them? Can't pay for that sort of advertising. <laughs> Fantastic. And the blog, folks, is gracegallermedia.com, where you can go after this show and access all these very interesting things that you're hearing today and well-referenced. So um, we're going to take a break now for our first session on navigating the cancer maze. I'm sure you found this most engaging, whether you're a cancer patient or a health professional listening today. So don't go away. We'll be back shortly. We're back on navigating the cancer maze today, and I'm with Martin Ashdown, and we're talking about the immune system. Um, Martin, you were talking about the interleukin-2 as as a treatment and about the paradox that actually happens, the switch-on, switch-off mechanism. Yes. Can you talk more about the actual mechanism of that so we can get an, an understanding of how it works? Okay. Well, I guess the, one of the... A good analogy is that, um, is that uh, as we discussed earlier, um, the immune system or uh, how the immune system works uh, with that of the menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. Now, as I said earlier, thanks to the fertility specialists, they went to the trouble of mapping the menstrual cycle on a daily basis. And the menstrual cycle is a very time-dependent mechanism. The hormones and their receptors act on different cell populations at different times to create a highly coordinated sequential physiologic process. Uh-huh. And, and, and really what we've done, and it's also it's a repeating process, Mm-hmm. Uh, and everything in the body uh, is under what's known as homeostatic control. And the physiologists or endocrinologists would tell you that if anything that's under homeostatic control with feedback, with a feedback mechanism for that control must oscillate. So the immune system is really not that much different uh, with respect to how, the, 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 from a perspective of the mechanistic aspects of it. We know that the immune system, when you stimulate it, and the best example is, you know, uh, when you're going overseas, they say, I'll get your vaccines done at least two weeks before you go away, because it takes your immune system about 10 to 14 days to develop protective immunity. Yep. Uh, and so, but that's a very sequential process again. So, and a very time dependent. It's an A B C D process, and it works in that in in that order. And the immune system coordinates itself in a similar way to the menstrual cycle, in that there are transient interactions of the immune hormones, the cytokines, like interleukin two, and their receptors on specific cell populations. So this is, uh, as I said, a coordinated, time dependent, highly sequential process that when you stimulate it, it rises and it falls, it switches on and it switches off. The observation that we've made is that in the chronic state where there's constant stimulation, say in the cancer patient, that immune response appears to be oscillating. And that in itself is uh, an important observation because in the past people thought that the immune response was essentially a fairly static Phenomenon, but in fact, it is dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like looking at the horizon of the, of the of the sea or the ocean. You look at the horizon; it looks flat, but when you look more closely, it's actually undulating. Mm-hmm. And that's what essentially what we've done is we've looked very closely at that immune response over a daily basis or near daily basis over a number of weeks to see the immune system rising and falling in response to the to, to the tumour burden. Okay. So, um, yeah, look, I've been um, researching the immune system and involved in a hands-on level with patients for many years. I was surprised by the short window of opportunity that you talked about with interleukin-2 receptors being present on immune cells for just 8 to 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you speak more to that? Well, that's, this, this sort of transient aspect has been known for a number of years, and I, I, it, we're actually bewildered that the immunologists haven't looked more closely at, at this, this phenomenon. Uh, um, 
you know, this is this is how this, the immune system coordinates itself. Mm-hmm. Through this half-life, um, uh, short half-life uh, rise and decay of the, the, the production of the hormone, um, the, the cytokine, interleukin-2, for example. There are other cytokines do exactly the same sort of thing. And then the half-life expression of the re- their receptors on these different cell populations. Again, this is in the textbooks. But no one's ever, ever bothered to map it accurately on a daily basis in the chronic disease state. Often in, in the literature you'll see uh, a mouse experiment done uh, looking at um, cytokines, uh, their levels of expression, and, and the immunologists will take one or two measurements in the first week, one in the second week, and one in the third week, and then join the dots. They never take daily measurements. Mm. And this is, this is not a difficult ask. It might be a little bit more expensive to do, um, because you have to use groups of mice, but it just has not been done. And we see this as the major oversight in understanding the immunology um, of, of cancer because essentially, essentially everyone starts with the mouse experiment. And so, you know, the whole thing's um, been done in a very poor way from the ground up. And, yeah. and, I, and we attribute this to, um, you know, the failures or not understanding how to um, successfully... Uh, manipulate the immune system of, uh, of, of um, patients in, in cancer clinical trials because we've had a lot of recent failures in, in cancer vaccines uh, um, and, and what have you. So uh, we see this as the main oversight that people have just have not looked closely enough in the, at the time domain. Mm. It's uh, classically called a scotoma, I think, in medicine. Oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where, um, you know, there's the stories of uh, people being on a beach in an Indigenous culture mm. and um, the, the sailing ship's coming in, but because they don't have any reference point for the sailing ship, they don't see them. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, and it's, cr- it's scotoma, mm. it's, yeah. Mm. I think that's a very interesting point. The immune markers that you measure, mm. what can you tell us about them mm. um, and I suppose they're, they're probably limitless if you really looked, are they? Well, the, the, when we first started, started looking, we chose um, a fairly uh, uh, accessible marker, a C-reactive protein, and uh, principally because it was the cheapest one. We, we didn't have a lot of resources uh, back then, and uh, the interesting thing about C-reactive protein is that it had been known to rise and fall with initiation and termination of the immune response uh, in a number of situations for about... 40 or 50 years and uh, but what was interesting about it was that CRP had been shown to rise with disease progression in cancer patients and so just by putting sort of two things together really um, we thought well okay if this is if C-reactive protein does this perhaps we can use it as a surrogate biomarker of the immune system switching on and switching off if not in the acute situation, but more so in the chronic situation. Mm -hmm. So we we really actually predicted that we would see um, the immune system recapitulating itself or repeating itself in the chronic state. And um, strangely enough, this whole phenomenon was actually described mathematically before we actually saw it, Um, just from the basis of just the physiology or endocrinology, um, you know, basically of the menstrual cycle and and overlaying that into the immune system. And and sure enough, that's what we saw. When you serially measure C-reactive protein over four weeks, every other day and sometimes every day if you you can do it, you see the immune system rising and falling over an approximate seven-day cycle. Other cytokines have shown um, a similar sort of cycle. Our colleagues at the Mayo have shown shorter cycles with other certain cytokines. But the, the main thing to appreciate is that you really only see this if you take daily or near daily measurements over a number of weeks. If you, it doesn't really manifest itself if you take one measurement a week mm. for four weeks. You yep. really need daily or near daily. Initially, it was when we first saw it, it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday for four weeks. That seems very basic. <laughs> well, it is. Uh, it is very basic. Uh, I think you know, nature is. Some, uh, you know, is sometimes m- manifestly complex, but fundamentally simple. Uh, and um, uh, if you if you don't look, you won't see it. And uh, you know, again, this is the analogy with the menstrual cycle. You know, the only reason we know about the fertility window is because of, you know, that aspect of that, that the menstrual cycle has been accurately mapped. And, uh, and also overlaying Robert North's work. You know, Robert North's work was predicated on timing. That's all. And we know that the immune system, because of its, these transient interactions, 
uh, and sequential interactions that timing must be important. Mm. And, if it's, and, it's, and it's the simplest domain to investigate. It is, it is. How long is each immune cycle in any patient that's well, got advanced well, we're, we're, cancer? Okay, well, we've mapped it We've mapped it in a number of different cancers now, whether it be colorectal, um, lung, kidney, bladder, breast, glioblastoma. It looks like it, it, it's just a natural kinetic of the immune system across the human population. Having said that, it's a bit like the elasticity, the biological elasticity of the menstrual cycle. You know, the menstrual cycle is known to be on average 28 days, but uh, in an out, you know, in an outbred human population of you know three billion women on the planet and mm. the fertile ones, obviously, and uh, it's been consistently that way. But there's a bit of a deviation, you know, around that 28 days. It, some women are 32, some women are 26, and vary bit all sorts of circumstances. So, with respect to this immune cycle, we see, it, on average, it's about it appears to be about seven days, uh, but it can be we've seen it as short as five and as long as nine. So, but you know, we need more data, obviously, mm. to tie it down. But the mathematics of it say it's it's about seven days now getting to the mathematics of it mm. <laughs> uh, to the equation mm. so i saw a paper authored by yourself brendan coventry and richard bright published in the journal for immunotherapy in november 2013 um, the title was clinical outcomes of interleukin 2 therapy in advanced cancer yep. meta-analysis over 62 trials can you tell us about the significance and implication of this paper and about the equation and how that came about Okay. You could get complete response. Okay, so essentially, if you um, uh, assume that the cycle is on average seven days in length, and that because of the uh, the information out there in the literature that the therapeutic window is about twelve hours, so it's a twelve-hour window every approximate seven days, and it's a repeating uh, cycle, that creates a probability issue that the patient could walk into the oncology clinic and receive therapy at about the right time of about a one in fourteen, so a seven percent probability. Mm-hmm. So this is how the whole thing was initially um, derived from. Uh, uh, from from information that you know we we already had, um, so if you're prepared to accept that at the, the observations of North, our observations of a repeating cycle, and the, the the immune kinetics that have been published in in the literature, and and so this equation says that the, the probability that a cancer patient will be successfully treated with interleukin two therapy is about seven percent. You can go back and interrogate the clinic last twenty years of clinical literature. Uh, uh, of the clinical use of interleukin-2 and see how many patients get complete responses. And I think we came... I think there was a... could be, I think, if I recall correctly, about 10,000 patients in that in that meta-analysis. And when you look at it, um, uh, the complete response rates in these two very different cancers were 7%. Magic number. Magic number. And and so what we did was, interestingly, uh, we, we, we um, did a, uh, an experiment with a 14-sided dice just to see if we could simulate the probabilities. And we got a 14-sided dice and we said, OK, uh, we're going to throw this 14-sided dice 50 times and we're going to repeat that 30 times. So, you know, that's 1,500 episodes. And we're going to choose the number five for no other reason than it, that it was one of the numbers. And you know the probability is going to be that it's going to turn up if you toss the dice a number of times, 7%. But what was interesting was that when you toss the dice 1,500 times, that five... Um, in those 30 episodes, can come up um, anywhere between 0 and 15% of the time in small, small studies, like 50 patient studies, which is what you see in the, in the clinical literature. And so, and this is exactly what you see with the complete response rates with interleukin-2, is that they can, although the average complete response rate is 7%, it can wobble anywhere between, you know, 0 mm-hmm. in a 30-patient trial or 15% in another trial done somewhere else. So it all, but the important thing is it all hovers within that area and it all clusters around the 7% line. So this gave us confidence that when interleukin-2 is, is working well, um, spectacularly well to deliver a complete response, it's actually working through timing. Timing. Mm. There it is. It's all in the timing. Okay, we'll finish on that note on Navigating the Cancer Maze. We'll be back shortly with Martin Ashdown. Don't go away. Welcome back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm with Martin Ashdown talking about the immune system. If you have uh, just tuned in, be sure to go back and listen to the entire program. 
because there's some very important information for you here today if you're a cancer patient, and I know you'll get very inspired by it. Um, Martin, there's been a lot of publicity around the immune system's role in cancer in recent months. A lot of new things coming on the market. In fact, this year in June, we featured Immunotherapy Month um, on Navigating the Cancer Maze. We had a number of special guests. We got a lot of interest about it. In light of the recent introduction of a lot of immunotherapy drugs at a lot of expense coming onto the market, uh, these drugs manipulate the immune response. Where do you think your findings are going to fit in and how's your work been received? This is a $64 question. How's your work been received by the medical and research establishment in general? Oh, OK. Well, I'll, I'll tackle the first bit first. Um, look, the, 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 what's happening with cancer immunotherapy, as you mentioned earlier about William Coley, all this is coming back. So this is this is essentially a reinvention. But the, the recent um, agents that have hit the press, uh, these are drugs by Bristol-Myers Squibb, uh, Merck, uh, Genentech, they go for targets uh, called uh, checkpoint targets. And uh, these... Uh, the idea of these agents is to actually release the immune system from regulation. And this mm-hmm. is really the, uh, an important um, uh, mind shift in the way we're actually treating cancer because what this is actually telling us is that when these agents work, they work by releasing a pre-existing immune response from regulation. Mm-hmm. So in the old days, it was thought, oh, you know, patient has cancer, patient's immune system can't see the cancer, um, uh, and, and that idea is clearly wrong. Uh, these agents are telling us that there is a, an, an immune response going on against the cancer, but importantly, that the cancer has got hold of the normal down-regulation controls of the immune system. So the, the analogy um, my colleague Brendan Coventry uses is that the immune system has its foot on the accelerator and the brake at the same time. So the engine's turning over, but it's not doing anything. Mm-hmm. These, these um, monoclonal antibodies, the uh, uh, checkpoints uh, inhibitors uh, are uh, blockade uh, agents. Blockade agents are um, taking the brake off of the immune system. Mm-hmm. So this is really uh, telling us a lot about that fundamental mechanism of what's going on. And just like interleukin-2, the appreciation is that interleukin-2 um, does exactly the same thing. It uh, can uh, uh, take the, the brake off of the immune system by stimulating the accelerator pedal, if you like. The, the major flaw with these, these newer agents, nivolumab and, and, and the like, is that these targets aren't only on the effector populations, the ones we're trying to drive... They're also on the regulatory cell population. So these aren't unique targets to different aspects of the immune system. And although they do work in a subset of patients, they don't work in all patients. And uh, we believe that by accurately administering these agents in a pulsed fashion, in an, in an immune-synchronised fashion with respect to the immune system's dynamics or its cycle or oscillation or whatever you want to call it, essentially our work, um, what happens clinically, you get random responses with the random administration, we think that it, it should be possible to create um, consistent responses and consistent complete responses if these agents are delivered at the right time in a pulse fashion. So it's just like the menstrual cycle mm-hmm. and understanding how there's a reoccurring therapeutic w- window or a reoccurring um, conception window. The same thing we think applies to the immune cycle and that. So this is very exciting because it's basically giving us, opening up a whole uh, insight into the the workings of the cancer patient's immune system and we think it's just going to come down to the accurate timing to make the responses consistent. Now, to answer your last question about how our um, ideas are being received, look, um, a a number of clinicians uh, warm to it. They really like the idea. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense, after all. And the physiology, the endocrinology, back it all up. The clinical experiences, back it all up. The uh, a lot of the um, the mouse data uh, backs it up. Uh, but probably it's our our biggest um, enemy is the simplicity of it. People say, well, how can it be that simple? 
So uh, I, I guess we'll have to wait and see how simple it is. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, if, if, if we're right, it will be wonderful. If we're wrong, you know, we'll be in good company and you can laugh us out of town. Mm-hmm. But there might be a high probability that you're right. <laughs> yes, well, I think, I think if you go back to, to... If we could get people to do the mouse experiments properly and, and go back and have a look at Robert North's work and also some of David Klatzman's work in France, uh, I mean, this is... This this is this really should have been worked out a long time ago, and it's all to do with accurate mapping, accurate observations, frequent observations. I mean, is there anything wrong with more data? Mm. And it's very user friendly because uh, above all, do no harm. If you're administering these things at the right time of the cycle, that's surely makes sense. Well, indeed, I think it brings it makes it a bit. It brings up um, the issues of actually managing things up front rather than randomly throwing it at the patient population and, and watching patients respond and or not respond. You do a little bit of hard work up front, and that we think will have the have the potential to get rid of all the work downstream. Mm. Because basically it's saying that we can already successfully treat uh, most cancer patients, if not all cancer patients, if the agents are delivered in a time-targeted, immune-synchronised way and, and not in this sort of random blunderbust um, uh, approach that's been going on. And the danger is that if they, we keep doing this, we'll have to move on to more and more combination therapies and essentially keep repeating the same old mistakes. Mm-hmm. That was a very important statement that you just made. Um, Evolutionary-wise, um, the way our immune systems have developed, that was quite interesting what you said before in paralleling that with the way that the female um, hormonal system has has been developed. Sure. Do you have any more insights on the evolution of cancer and the immune system that uh, you could uh, share with us? Oh, <laughs> Written about in papers or just out of your well, head? Well, <laughs> I think, look, my view is that, and I think my colleague Brendan Coventry shares this, is that cancer is actually an intimate part of our life cycle. Uh, one of the most amazing things I find, you know, uh, or when thinking about this is that the cancer cell is supposedly been, well, it's been portrayed as an aberrant cell, but this aberrant cell with, you know, mutations and what have you is able to survive incredible, you know, onslaught of toxic therapies, continuous toxic therapies, you know, radiation, um, chemotherapy and what have you, and survive and ultimately kill the host. So, uh, but what's, you know, going back to your early comments or statements about the new immunotherapies, what, what this is telling us is that the cancer is actually not the problem. The problem is actually the immune system's perception of the cancer. Now, the interesting thing is that the immune system uh, is under rapid evolution. Uh, it's called uh, somatic hypermutation. Um, cells of uh, cancer cells, they tend to mutate, the genes tend to mutate at a glacial pace. But the immune system's role is to actually keep up with that. And so then, therefore, you've got to say, ask, uh, ask, ask yourself the question, well, if, if we can detect an ongoing immune response against the cancer, uh, but that immune response is actually being suppressed, Again, the cancer is actually not the problem. The gene genetics of it, the genomics of it, is not the issue. And I think this is what's led everyone down the wrong path, is everyone's been concentrating on the, the cancer cell. I think what Socrates said, only a fool would preoccupy themselves with the origins of the universe. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> Heard it loud and clear. Um, also, um, these immune measurements, in terms of complementary alternative medicines, have you, have you had a look at that or do you know anyone who has? Because one would presume that any therapeutic substance that you're using against cancer would follow the same precedent? Well, look, I, look I, it's, it's difficult to say, but I'll, I'll, I'll just pass the comment that um, with respect to um, you know, homeopathy and, and, and natural medicines and things like this, you've got to remember that most of the cancer drugs, the original cancer drugs, came from plants. So you look at Vimblastin and Vincristin origins were with the periwinkle plant of Madagascar and taxolocos specific yew tree and things like this. You know, there are things out there in nature which are powerful immune stimulants. Um, you know, people have allergies to peanuts and things like this. Mm. So there are things out there that can stimulate the immune system. My only um, caveat on all this is that what we now know is that the th same things that can stimulate the immune system can also shut it down. Mm. And this is, this is what we call the bimodal paradox. 
And this has essentially been solved by the new understanding of how interleukin-2 works against the immune system. So, look, and, and you know, even, even another remarkable story is I would encourage everyone to read about is a, a food dye called Rose Bengal or PV. 10, as it's called, um, as it's been used clinically. I mean, this is just a, you know, the pink food dye that you put in cupcakes and it's shown to have remarkable effects over um, melanoma lesions. And uh, and it looks as though that this is this um, cupcake food dye is actually stimulating the immune system when it works. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it may end up being that we actually, to, to successfully treat the cancer patient, we actually don't have to use much of anything really as long as it's done at the right time yeah that's fairly remarkable too we'll come back to Roseburn Gold because that's a really interesting story um, autoimmune responses now there's a lot of clinics around the world that are actually using and we're probably not going to have time to finish this question in in, in this particular part but um, the autoimmune response by using a lot of immune stimulants and getting a real cytokine storm a really good response yes um, a lot of clinics are doing this but not actually measuring it. And these are some of the more alternative clinics around the world. Sure. So this I see as one of the other big problems for the uh, immunotherapy um, angle. Sure. And so uh, and that, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very good point because t- we've used cancer drugs to treat autoimmune disease and, uh, you know, to switch the immune system off when, when really we want to switch the immune system off on in cancer. Uh, yeah. And this, again, goes to the bimodality issues that uh, cancer drugs hit dividing cells, and we know now that the immune system has, uh, you know, the accelerator cells, they divide at a different time to the regulatory T cells. So, again, yes, I, I think that the, uh, the timing of application of, of a whole raft of agents with respect, to, um, with respect to autoimmune disease, and, and we know that patients... Autoimmune patients can respond spectacularly well to standard chemotherapeutic agents. It doesn't happen all the time, mm. and we would argue again that it's all to do with timing, with respect to their their immune systems oscillating. And we know that in many autoimmune conditions, the disease is actually relapsing, remitting, relapsing, remitting. Okay. So it's all so clinically, you can see aspects of of our immune cycle manifest themselves clinically. Um, and then perhaps subside. So, look, yes, I think the immune we call we call it immune synchronisation of therapy. This we think this has great application in autoimmune disease uh, and uh, as well as cancer. So, hitting the opposing side of the seesaw as it swings. So, you know, to use that analogy, throwing the sandbag on the right end of the seesaw at the right time. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then measuring. And then, but above all, measure it before you do it, because otherwise it becomes a random event. And so you've got to understand about the pre-existing nature of the immune dynamics before you actually treat. That's a great answer. Thank you. We're going to take a break now on Navigating the Cancer Maze. We'll be back shortly for our last session with Martin Ashdown. Don't go away. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're talking about the immune system today. And, of course, my special guest that you've been listening to is Professor Brendan Coventry. So we finished off the last session, uh, Brendan, talking about the oscillations of the immune cycle. Could you explain the peaks and the troughs of the oscillations of that cycle, what they actually mean, and how do you time treatment? If you could just give us an overview of that. Well, uh, look, some of this is in in evolution. We're trying to understand this in in greater depth. So what I'm about to say is our best explanation at this point in time. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to to sort of work on this further and, and unlock it further. And, and it will change a bit, but in essence, uh, when the uh, the trough is the lowest point of of the cycle, and so that's where it's it's coming down, it's being turned off, and then it's about to be turned back on, and the CRP levels are are about to go up again. So this is based on on C-reactive protein being taken serial measurements each day uh, that. Uh, at, the, at the, roughly the same time, so that that we can get points that can plot a curve, mm-hmm. and that's reliant on enough points being present for the curve to actually show. It, imagine if you had two points that were a month apart; you could basically just draw a straight line between them. But if you took them a week apart, then you could start to see some pattern emerging. If you 
took them uh, two days apart, you'd see a much better pattern if you took them a day apart. Um, so these are blood tests that a patient would get, and then you would get a particular level, and that could be plotted on a, on a graph. And that reveals a curve. And this curve is a waveform or an oscillation uh, which uh, goes up and goes down. And so uh, there is a, a trough where it's at its lowest point and there is a peak which is where it is highest point. And so it waxes and wanes. And what's driving that and what's actually making that go up and down, we're still trying to work out. But our, our best explanation at the moment is that there's two groups of cells, white cells, uh, called lymphocytes, that have the capacity to uh, activate and the other group has the capacity to suppress or inhibit. So what turns the immune cycle on appears to be the group of cells that are activating. So they're accelerating the immune response on. And they uh, start the acceleration and they start to divide very rapidly just before the curve is starting to go up. And then, about 48 hours later, and, and this has been worked out through multiple papers, this is not our work, this is other people's work as well, that um, about 48 hours after the activation phase, the immune system has a switch-off mechanism, a break phase, and another group of cells, the regulatory T-cells, actually start to divide, and when they divide rapidly, then the immune system gets turned off. So there's this turn-off, turn-off mechanism, on, off, on, off, causing the wave. Mm -hmm. And then what we've deduced is that there are certain parts in the wave that seem to have an effect in turning the immune system on better, and there are other parts that have effects in turning the immune system off better. So that the theory goes that if you target those particular points on the cycle, then you can actually turn the immune system on when you want to turn it on, and you can turn it off when you want to turn it off. At the moment, because we're not taking this wave form into account, this immune cycle into account, then our treatments are falling wherever they fall when the patient walks into the oncology clinic. And that means that our treatments could be turning it on or turning it off or doing a combination of both. And we will never know unless we monitor the patient to be able to reveal this dynamic waveform that's going on underneath. And if we can then time, instead of it being convenient just for the oncology clinic, but convenient for the particular patient at the particular time that they need to be treated, then we can actually turn the immune system selectively on or selectively off. And that opens a range of different treatment options for us to, to use, probably using a whole lot of uh, very cheap and inexpensive treatments that can manipulate the immune system on or off. We think this is occurring naturally. So people who have a remission just may, by luck, fall within the right time if they have a complete response to treatment because they've just fallen into the right time of the window of opportunity. Yes, and uh, um, Martin and I have, have, have sat down and just looked at this further and, and we've now gone back and looked at, at chemotherapy studies, um, many studies that have been done in, in some 3,000 patients uh, and found that that the complete response rate across multiple different cancers and multiple different uh, cytotoxic cancer treatments sits around about uh, 7%, somewhere between 5 and 10%. Um, we've also looked at uh, a completely different agents that turn the immune system on selectively that are just given without any consideration of this cycle, but they're just given to patients so they don't, they don't kill any cancer cells directly and they don't uh, supply any any uh, antigen for vaccination or anything. They they just simply turn the immune system on. Their rate sits around about seven percent, five to ten percent range. And we've looked at some of these newer agents that have been used for treatment of 
a range of, of cancers, in particular melanoma, and uh, some of the newer pathway blockers, uh, the so-called BRAF inhibitors, uh, and uh, for, for that group of patients that have the BRAF mutation, and also some of the checkpoint uh, inhibitors that, that can uh, take the break off the immune system and, and stop the lymphocytes dying close to the tumour. Uh, some of these newer agents are, are really quite exciting. But interestingly enough, their complete response rates sit around about 5 to 10% as well. So um, this, this is quite remarkable. It's, it's, it's mathematically very strange and biologically very odd that it should all sit in the 5 to 10% range for causing complete responses. We should see a much broader range if, if some sort of uh, mathematical restriction was not at work. So um, after lots of discussion and, and head-scratching, uh, Martin and I have, um, have come up with uh, the, uh, the sort of inescapable thought that there must be some sort of window where uh, in this cycle, and this, each cycle is roughly seven days in length, there must be some sort of window uh, that the treatment, if it's given in that window, will become optimally effective for the patient and that this is the thing that's actually restricting it to this 5 to 10% bracket across every treatment that we seem to be looking at and we seem to know of and, and is reported in the literature. Wonderful. You've been very generous with your knowledge and time today. Uh, we're coming to an end now on navigating the cancer maze. I'd like to ask you back for another session at some point because I think there's so much more we could have talked about today and I'm sure we'll get very good listener response from today's show. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for the opportunity too. Bye for now. I'm very grateful today for Professor Brendan Coventry who's taken the time to share his experience and knowledge and his research about cancer as well as his personal thoughts on cancer. He's recently been a guest here in Brisbane at a very special meeting called a meeting of minds where cancer vaccines immune cycle and innovative treatments were discussed. Please take a look at the website gracegawlerinstitute.com if you'd like to follow up further with this or especially related to the show, my blog, gracegawlermedia.com and remember for new listeners, G-A-W-L-E-R, gracegawlermedia.com and there you'll find a lot of resources and direct reference to some of the research papers by link that Professor Coventry and Martin Ashdown have been involved with. It's been great having you listening to the show today. I'm always excited about innovative oncology. So join us again next week. And in the meantime, have a great weekend. We'll see you next time. Bye.